Well, we don't like to be uncomfortable, do we? I've realized that um, in our culture, especially maybe others, we um, pursue comfort and we avoid discomfort. I realize this about myself because I'm at the stage of life where I don't travel unless I bring my own pillow uh, because I don't want an uncomfortable night of sleep. But sometimes I think our desire to avoid comfort actually leads us to avoid difficult conversations. It's one of the reasons we don't talk about money, politics, or religion, right? We don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. And one of the most uncomfortable things to talk about is death. So we avoid it, or we suppress it, or we delay talking about it, or we obsess over it to the point of trying to make every decision to, that we make to avoid death. But it's a question that every human being needs to answer. What happens when we die? It may be actually the question that determines our, our daily lives and decisions more than any other. And in this passage here at the end of the Bible, on one of the last pages, the Apostle John receives this vision from Jesus. And Jesus wants us to know how the story ends. He wants us to get a glimpse of what happens after we die so that it will help us understand life after death and even life before death. And we need this in a time when we see every day on the news the death toll from the coronavirus. And we check our phones for the stats of the day. And it seems that death is all around us. And it is, because death is always all around us. We are always in this world, in the valley of the shadow of death. And so in this passage, what we see that Jesus wants us to know about life and death is the tragedy of death and the promise of new life. First scripture tells us that death is a tragedy. Now that may seem obvious to us, but it has to be said. Because what John is doing in these uh, verses here, in the last couple of pages of the Bible here and elsewhere in chapter 21 and 22, uh, in the last couple of chapters of the Bible, he's actually going back to the first couple of chapters of the Bible. He's doing something counterintuitive. He's going back to the beginning. It, it's almost like the way we talk about, you know, the life before COVID. Do you remember when we used to go to restaurants and we ate inside? John is warning us, and Jesus is warning John, um, to remember the time before death. He's reminding us of the story that death is not natural. Death is not the way it was supposed to be. There was a time before death, and, and there will be a time when death is no more. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, death shall be no more. Now, that might sound kind of understated. I want him to like sing and dance and shout it from the rooftops. There's no more death. But do you know why he can say death shall be no more? It's because on the previous page, Jesus throws death into a lake of fire. Because death is an enemy. Death is a tragedy. And any Christian theology of death and afterlife has to acknowledge that death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is an enemy bent on the destruction of God's image and God's good creation. 
an alien invader that came into the world through the curse of humanity's rebellion against God. And we are under that curse. You and I and everyone here will die. There are no loopholes. As Aaron Burr famously said, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. I'm kidding. That was from the music, musical Hamilton, not Aaron Burr, but he's right. Death will rob life from each of us. Death takes and it takes and it takes and it takes long before we actually come to the end of our lives, doesn't it? Death is always at work, taking from us, taking from God's good creation, taking from those who are created in God's image. We all live under its shadow. It takes from us a thousand different ways before they put us in the ground. The death of youth. We experience the death of our dreams, the death of relationships, maybe the death of a marriage, the death of a career, death of security, death of safety and peace, true safety, because death always looms over us and all that we do. Death belongs to the curse, and the curse is always upon us, taking and taking and taking. So we have to see death as an enemy. We shouldn't make friends with it or just see it as a natural part of life. Whether it visits you prematurely, as we say, or at a ripe old age, at home, in your bed, surrounded by your loved ones, death is still tragic. It is an enemy. And that's the way we're supposed to see death, according to the Bible. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we should mourn death. Sometimes I hear people say, don't cry at my funeral, I know where I'm going. And, and I'm in a better, I'll be in a better place. And I get that sentiment, and it's true to an extent, but um, throughout Scripture, we're supposed to see death as an enemy and a thief. So I give you all permission to cry at my funeral. In fact, you better cry at my funeral. Uh, we should mourn death in the same way that we mourn sin and evil. Just like Jesus did, as he wept and he was angry at the death of his friend Lazarus. But we should also contemplate death. Rather than making friends with it or ignoring it or obsessing over it or making all of our decisions in life so that we'll be safe, we should at times, it is proper at times, to take the opportunity to think about our own mortality and remind ourselves that each day of life on this earth is a gift from God. A few weeks ago, death took a friend of mine. He was a beloved Peruvian pastor named Jaime Avellaneda. In my early 20s, some of you know, I served in Peru as a missionary, and Pastor Jaime was the administrator of our mission. And he was this larger-than-life personality who um, was such a servant and he served so many people. He literally impacted thousands of people. And it wasn't just through preaching sermons, uh, although that was part of it. Um, it was through serving other people and through, through this joy that he had. He was the type of person who always had a ready smile and a mischievous look in his eye. 
and, um, and this hearty sense of humor. When I think of Jaime, I think of his smile. And uh, he died two weeks ago, 64 years old, from COVID. And part of the reason why he died is because he looked, he appeared as a healthy man, but on the inside, he had a heart condition. And um, I don't know if this is true or not, but he used to say that he had two pacemakers. The, the doctors am among us will tell me if that's possible or not. But he would ask people to come and put their ear at his chest to hear the ticking of his pacemaker. And he would say, I'm a time bomb. I'm waiting, and someday I'm going to go off. Jaime knew that he was going to die, and he spoke of it often. And at his memorial service, someone said, I wonder if that was the key to his joy. Is it that, that Jaime knew every day when he woke up, this could be my last day? And th that he knew every day was a gift, wondering when he would stop ticking, when the bomb would go off. And, and this person said, I wonder if that is what gave him his joy in life, if that's part of what made him who he was. So how does contemplating death bring to fuller and deeper life? How does that work? Well, Jaime believed in Jesus. And he believed that in the death of Jesus, death died too. That although death is an enemy, death is not the end. Um, as the church father Athanasius wrote hundreds of years ago, he said it this way, And so it was that two marvels came to pass at once, that the death of all was accomplished in the Lord's body, and that death and corruption were wholly done away with by reason of the word that was united with it. The Apostle Paul said it this way, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, Paul and Athanasius and Pastor Jaime all knew that death is an enemy, but for those who believe in Jesus, it is not the end. Because in the death of Jesus, death died. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we are promised, all those who believe in Jesus, a new life. And so let's look at this new life that's revealed in these verses here. Let's look at the promise of new life. Did you know that heaven is not our home? Look at what John says in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. See, the eternal life that is offered in Christ is not the promise that you will go to heaven when you die. It's the promise that God will bring heaven to earth. To put it in the words of the New City Catechism, which we're using throughout this sermon series, we will be given renewed resurrection bodies to live in a renewed, restored creation. The promise of new life is a real physical city and a physical earth with physical feast, with real food and real wine. If you read in Revelation 21 and 22, it describes this supper of the Lamb to be enjoyed by real resurrected bodies. And here's the better news. These renewed resurrected bodies and this renewed restored creation will be free from death and from the fear of death, but even more importantly, 
this restored world will be free from sin and evil and all the former things that belong to the curse. Look at verse 4. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love that image that God wants us to know that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, all of the things that belong to sin and death and the evil one, all the former things that belong to the curse, have passed away. We will be free. We will be healed. We will be the way that we were meant to be. Can you picture it? Can you picture that world to come? I grew up thinking that heaven was basically this immaterial place of light and peace, peace something like um, the white space from the movie The Matrix, uh, mixed with choir practice. And I knew I was supposed to want to go there, but if I was honest, I didn't really want to go there. And I remember when I was 11 years old, um, I was, my parents let me play football for the first time. And I remember the week of my first game, I put on my pads and I put on my helmet and I looked in the mirror because I was awesome and I wanted to see what I looked like. And I remember praying, Lord, please don't come back before Friday night. Uh, please don't end the world before Friday night because in my 11-year-old mind, um, I didn't want God to come, I didn't want Jesus to come back before I was able to play my first football game. Getting pummeled on the gridiron sounded better to me than whatever was on the other side of life and death in this world. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Do you ever feel like your bucket list is, is better than the life everlasting? And we just got to rush out and do as much as we can because we don't know if, if the next world is going to be good enough for us or not. Maybe we need a revelation. Maybe we need the veil to be peeled back just a little bit so we can get a glimpse of how good the world to come is, how good it will be for us. That's what Jesus is doing in, these pass in this passage, in these verses. He's just giving us a glimpse just to whet our appetite for how good this next world will be. In other words, when we think of eternal life, we, we shouldn't think of the white space of immateriality but we should think of something like this world, but new. This world full of the glory of God, but without sin, death, corruption, and evil. We should imagine dinner parties and hikes through the Dolomites and surfing a perfect left wave, laughing with friends late into the night, and resurrected bodies without asthma or diabetes that can dance and run and play family relationships with no tears or heartache or betrayal. Most of all, life lived not by faith the way it is now, but by sight, lived under the eternal smile of God and never leaving his presence. That's the world that awaits us. Can you imagine that? We must imagine that. Just as we must co contemplate the tragedy of death, we must also contemplate and imagine the promise of new life. What would this world be like without sin and death and suffering? 
What will I be like without the duplicity of my sinful desires? What will my relationships be like without fear of intimacy or rejection or being hurt? What will life be like with none of the things that threaten us now? Living not in the valley of the shadow of death, but in the light of God's presence and life everlasting. But you might say, well, that is bright hope for tomorrow, but is that strength for today? That sounds like pie in the sky when you die. Um, what are we supposed to do now in the meantime? Well, in, in short, um, we hope. We worship. We live lives of faith, hope, and love. Loving God, loving our neighbor. And as we do that, we do what Jesus asked for in the Lord's Prayer. God's kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to long for that and pray for that and work to make it so. We do this in our worship, in our vocations, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our deeds of love and mercy. We look ahead to the world that is to come and we proclaim it now in both words and deeds. And as we do that, we, we proclaim to our neighbors that death is not the end. We proclaim to our neighbors and to one another and to ourselves that this world is not all there is. There is another world, and it is available to you through faith in Jesus. And we go out into this world, and we bring glimpses of the world to come. That might be in an encouraging word. That might be in a meal or even a cup of cold water offered in the name of Jesus. That might be through the work of our vocations, bringing the common good to our neighbors, or our deeds of mercy as we serve one another. Dr. King, in his last sermon, um, said this. He said, it's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder and all of its symbolism, but ultimately people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preachers must talk about New York. It's all right to talk about the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, the new Santa Barbara. See, in our words and deeds of proclaiming God's kingdom, we ask for God to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And we, when we do that, um, we bring them a glimpse of the world to come. We bring our neighbors a glimpse of that world of life everlasting. When we feed the hungry, when we love our neighbors, when we worship here, we proclaim a foretaste of the world to come. And there will be a day when Jesus returns. And we no longer live in this world, but in a new restored world with new resurrection bodies. In this world, um, we live under the shadow of death. But in that world, we will live under the gaze and the smile of God himself. And on that day, um, 
we will worship and we will feast.